With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. I'm Daniel Connolly here with Megan Gower. And UConn last night claimed their 19th Big East tournament title, their 53, 53rd conference title overall. So we have a lot to talk about on today's show. We're going to just go through each game, hit on the big points from that, talk about our major takeaways from the weekend as a whole, talk about the Big East awards that got announced after our last podcast, and then also wrap up with some bracketology with our certified Joe Lenardi bracketologist, Megan. So first, St. John's game, the opener in the quarterfinals. UConn handled St. John's pretty easily both games in the regular season and handled them pretty easily on Thursday night. I think my favorite thing about that St. John's game is that it started at the exact same time that men's basketball had its season regular season finale against Georgetown and UConn led by 23 women's basketball led by 23 at halftime. And the men had a larger halftime lead. I really like the number of times that's happened. Can't be too many. I mean, when are the men ever even up by 23 to begin with? Like that was such a great stat and just such a great day for UConn basketball as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I personally can't remember the last time the UConn men won a game by 23, let <laughs> we're up 23 at the half, so definitely good to see, obviously, that they're doing better, but also just insane that they were up by more than the, the woman, I think. Not something I expected to be saying on Saturday afternoon at all. Well, especially because the women, like, played pretty well in that first half. It's not like they came out flat like they have this season a lot of times or just couldn't get their rhythm going they played a very good first half. They played three really, really good games. And I think just, it was overall a very impressive weekend and one that could have started very, very poorly. So in the second quarter, I believe it was Nika mules on a fast break, tries to dish it off to page and then suddenly goes down under the rim and is grabbing her leg. We have no idea what's happening. She gets hauled off the court. Can't put any leg, any weight on her left leg comes back with crutches Gino says after the game that it was a sprained ankle and he wasn't sure she was going to play the next day. I think like immediately when she went down just earlier in the day, if you hadn't seen it, uh, SB nation does a very good video series called rewinder where it kind of looks at these major moments that happen in sports and what went into each moment. And a couple of years ago, they did bird at the buzzer. And it just so happened that Bird at the Buzzer happened on the exact same day 20 years ago as that St. John's game. And as I'm sure everyone listening knows, Shea Ralph went down in that game under the basket and tore her ACL. And I had literally just watched the video earlier that day since it had came up and I tweeted about it. So the moment that Nico Mule went down, 
I thought it was just a matter that this day is cursed and UConn can never play on this day again. So the fact that it was only a sprained ankle and she came back the very next day, I think UConn got really lucky and is it, it's just also very good that she wasn't severely hurt at all. Yeah, exactly. I think when she went down, the amount of pain that looked like she was in and the way she was holding her her leg, my first reaction was that it was probably her knee. So obviously just knowing that it was an ankle on Saturday was a much better prognosis than anything to do with knees. Knees are never good, but um, for her to come back on Sunday, I think was really impressive. I think I kind of figured that she was probably at least out for, you know, the rest of the the Big East tournament and hopefully that they would have her back for the NCAA tournament, but she did even miss the full game. So definitely a good sign. Right. It's like, she goes down and we're like, okay, well, they have two weeks off before the start of the NCAA tournament and they really don't need her until the sweet 16 at the earliest. So that's like three weeks for her to get healthy. That should be plenty of time. Even if it is a pretty bad ankles brain. And she's just like, eh, I'm going to come back 24 hours later. No, it's no big deal. I'm like walking around at shoot around the next day without any crutches on. It's just, I don't understand how, that's possible. It's just those Europeans seem to be built different. She seems to be built different. I mean, both Gino and Olivia Nelson Adota said after the game, yeah, she's really tough. So like, if she's not playing tomorrow, I'm going to be really surprised. And I was like, oh, okay. He's being a little sarcastic. No, he was being dead serious. Like (laughs) his line was that if she isn't playing tomorrow, that's how we know it's serious. So I can't imagine how serious her foot injury was earlier in the year that knocked her out for three games. I mean, she must've almost needed needed it to be amputated. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I mean she's clearly obviously very tough but I think the funniest part to me was in warm-ups on Sunday they obviously had the camera on her a lot in warm-ups on, on when I was watching on tv and she could tell that they were following her she just kept like smiling and waving at the camera which was hysterical um but yeah definitely like looked to be in good spirits by Sunday and obviously played well so looks like it was just a 24-hour ankle injury whatever that is <laughs> I actually had no idea that she was just like smiling and waving at the camera the whole time. That's even funnier. And then you can also put out the video that morning of her in shoot around, walking around dressed for shoot around. So yeah, just whatever kind of, however they build people in Croatia, like I, I would like some of that, whatever it is, because I rolled my ankle the same day Paige Beckers rolled her ankle against Tennessee. So like two months ago or however long it was. I went for my first run like two weeks ago. Like I, <laughs> I really let that thing heal. And Nico is just like, nah, I'm, I'm just going to come right back. It doesn't matter. I don't need my ankle. <laughs> yeah, definitely very impressive. I mean, I guess not that surprising though, a little bit surprising, but just like the amount of toughness that we've seen out of her all season, I, I'm, I'm not that surprised. And I mean, we never got the story about what's going on with her black eye either, but she's been (laughs) walking around with a black eye all tournament as well. So I'm sure something must have happened just in practice by accident or something, but definitely one of the toughest players on the team. If she ended up with a black eye, I, I just can't think of what happened to whoever else, whoever gave her that black eye, because it probably didn't end very well for her (laughs) or them, whoever it was also in that, St. John's game though, Adamakarat came back for the first time. I don't remember if, if it was known that she was coming back on our last episode as has become a running theme. We just don't have any concept of time anymore. So she made her first appearance back, played 11 minutes, honestly looks pretty rusty. And it's not that surprising because it's been two or three months that she's been out. I think it is good just to see her out on the court in any capacity. 
and she grabbed three rebounds, couldn't really find her shot. But I feel like at least in these three games, at the very least, whatever she did on the court was going to be secondary to just being back out there to begin with. So I think it was positive that she was out there. She was only supposed to play 10 minutes and played 11. So she clearly was feeling pretty good if that was the case. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we saw a whole lot from her this tournament, but I think that was kind of to be expected. Just good to see her back out on the court, kind of shaking off some of that rust as they, and then they've got, you know, a couple weeks of practice and before they've got another game before she'll have to be back out there. So I think, like you said, just good to see her back out there. And I'm sure her contributions are probably going to be a little bit limited the rest of the way through just because she missed so much time, but it's still good for you kind of have another option off the bench, especially if, God forbid, something did happen, like Mika was actually out with an ankle injury. It's, it's good that they'll have, you know, more depth. Right. I wasn't really sure where she might be in terms of coming back. I don't really feel great about Anna's prospects about contributing this season, just because she's missed so time and there's clearly a decent level of rust. And it's not like she was lighting the world on fire before the injury or at the start of the season, whether she was injured or for that or not, we don't know, but it's just such a short time frame to kind of try and get better. And she does have these two weeks in practice. So it is a pretty long time for her to adjust. And maybe just the fact that she got her feet wet in these three games and can now get back into the flow of practice a little more and really work on her shooting and the different parts of her game. I think maybe by the NCAA tournament, she'd be in a better place, but nothing that we saw gave any great indication that she's going to be a consistent contributor, which is disappointing because we saw how good she was last season and she would be a really key piece to this team. If she could find that three point shooting and become the three pointer that she was last season. But right now I'd bet against it happening, but at the same time, it's been such a weird season. I guess you never really know what's going to happen from game to game. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'll be surprised if she gets kind of significant minutes, especially once they get to, you know, the Sweet 16, Elite 8, beyond that, assuming they make it there. I think that Gio's probably going to stick to kind of the six to seven rotation that we've we've seen as of late. But, um, you know, maybe she does find her three-point shot. And that's something that this team definitely lacks at times. So that could earn her some minutes down the stretch there. Right. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but in their first two games – I don't have the numbers for how many shots they took in those first two games of the Big East tournament, but they made six three-pointers in those first two games of the Big East tournament. And then they made six in more or less a little more than two quarters of the final. So yeah, three-point shooting still is not a strength of this team. And I think it's, if anything, if they go on to win the national championship, I think they'll do it in spite of their three-point shooting instead of because of their three-point shooting. So yeah, I, it would be great if she could come back and produce at that level, but I think it might just be a little too much to expect. And she could be a player that just could really afford to get into the off season, kind of hit the reset button, maybe get away from basketball for a little bit and then get herself in a position to come back next year when she isn't going to come in and be expected to have a huge role like she did this year, just because of the amount of talent that they have coming in and everyone that they also have returning. Moving on to the Villanova game. I think, Pretty easily the story of this game is Kristen Williams on both sides of the ball. So she scores 26 points, actually had a lead over Villanova herself going into the third quarter. Unfortunately, she could not hang on to it. And then also just completely shut down and eliminated Villanova star Maddie Segrist. Segrist had three points, which is a career low for her. It's just 
such an unbelievable i feel like we use unbelievable a lot i genuinely cannot believe that kristen williams is all of a sudden this defensive stopper this lockdown defender she's just such an unlikely candidate for it and it's incredible how it's just kind of i don't know to me it feels like it's come out of nowhere yeah, and then especially had a player like Seagrest, who's not only one of the best players in the Big East, but I would say probably one of the better players in the country. She's a finalist for the Katrina McLean Award. It's an award that Nafisa Collier won in the past for the best power forward. So a really, really good player. And then to hold her to a, a career low is just really impressive, especially because, I mean, Williams has a size disadvantage guarding her. There's a lot of different factors there, but she's able to just completely shut her down not only like hold her to just three points, but really kind of uninvolve her in the offense throughout the game. I think she just couldn't really get any good touches a lot on the offensive end. And Williams just really keeps her out of doing anything for Villanova, which is a big part of why they win this game so handedly. And then of course, on the other end, 26 points, I think probably the best offensive performance we've seen from Kristen Williams this season. To date, she hit a couple or three threes, but I think more of it was just her driving in the lane, take aggressive takes to the basket types of things you want to see from her. Yeah, definitely. It's just, I think it was performances that all three of her performances this weekend, honestly, were just a level that we haven't seen from her before. And even Gino said it, that she's finally realizing her full potential after a season where it really didn't go the way that she'd planned. It's just such a huge step for her to finally be coming out like this at this time of year because again as Gino said it this is a championship team with the way that Kristen Williams is playing and I'm not really sure there's someone else that can have as much of an impact on this team by the way she plays like Kristen Williams can especially when you come to the defense and the offense so yeah I think for everything that we saw throughout these three games just her progress from even where she was a couple weeks ago is just stunning and is a huge, huge bonus for this team. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of times on the floor this weekend, she looked like the best player on the team, which I think is just something we haven't really been able to say at all this season. I think, you know, Paige has looked like the best player kind of most nights, but I think Kristen looked like the best player this weekend. And I mean, she doesn't need to necessarily be the best player on the floor going down the stretch in March, but if her and Paige are both operating at that high of a level, it's going to be really difficult to beat this UConn team. Right. And just to talk about Paige for a little bit, she didn't have a bad tournament by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I think she averaged 19 points and I really feel like I didn't even notice her out there, which is pretty impressive. I mean, she did make some really nice passes, had some really nice baskets, but it didn't feel like those games in late January, early February, where she was just carrying the team on her back. She was really just scoring in the flow of the game and doing basically the exact amount of scoring that the team needed her to do. And it helped that there was a really balanced effort there, but I thought that was just really encouraging how Paige could have such solid, even, I mean, such great games. And it wasn't even really that noticeable because of how everything else flowed and clicked. And it wasn't like she was the headliner in any of the games, which is just a very, very good development for how this team is playing. Yeah, agreed. I think Paige still had a fantastic tournament and she wasn't the most noticeable person on the floor, which isn't a bad thing. I think it's a good thing for UConn. And like you said, she still averaged 19 points, had eight assists against Villanova, really solid performances overall, and then had 23 points against Marquette while being guarded by Selena Lott, who was the co-defensive player of the year for most of the game. So that makes that even more impressive. So a really solid tournament from her, but like you said, we just saw a lot more balance 
in these last few games, which makes you kind of better team as a whole. So I think, you know, UConn was obviously very good. They beat South Carolina when it was the page backers show, but when they have everyone working together, they're even better. Right. It's the thing where, yeah, sure. They probably can have like the South Carolina game did show that they can win games when not everyone is on their game or contributing as much as they can. But I don't really think that's a very sustainable way to try and win games, especially in March where you're going to play good teams on most nights. I mean, once you get out of those first two rounds of the tournament, it was just a couple of years ago that UCLA almost upset UConn in the Sweet 16. So it's not like those games are just going to be walks in the park for UConn. So yeah, maybe she can carry them on her back in a Sweet 16 or Elite Eight game or maybe even a Final Four game. But if you need her to do that every single night for five, six games in a row, it's not going to end well. And they're going to be going home early. Whereas if everyone's clicking like they are now and they play like they did in this Big East tournament against some of the best teams in the country, I have a hard time seeing them losing a game, which is not something I think I would have said a month ago and is not something I've even said about these last two UConn teams because they both had pretty clear flaws. And even though last year's team was playing better by the time the NCAA tournament was supposed to start, I, they, they still weren't really at a level that they needed to be to compete for a national championship. So just the way this team has developed and improved throughout the year and the fact that they're getting better and better is just, it's such a great sign for this UConn team. And none of these teams that they played in the Big East tournament were anything to write home about there. None of these teams are going to be in even the sweet 16 or elite eight in all likelihood. They aren't ranked in the top 25. They're not even like a power team, let alone anything like that. But UConn just kicked the crap out of them and made them look like bad teams. And I think that's something that we haven't necessarily seen from UConn in a couple of years and something that we saw from those really good UConn teams. So even though UConn still doesn't really have a great test coming up for a little bit, it's still better for them to be playing such great basketball than to not at all. Yeah, exactly. I think they they looked really, really good from the eye test this weekend. I mean, like you said, they're not great teams, but I mean, Marquette's a good team, and they made Marquette look like a, a really bad team. And I think I think that speaks to how well you kind of played this weekend. I think they're playing some of the best basketball in the country right now. I think the only team that really seems to be on the same level, I would say, is Stanford. I, I watched a, a lot of the top 10 teams, probably all the top 10 teams play at least one, if not more, games this weekend, and I would say – yeah, the Stanford seems to be on that level. I don't think there's a lot of other teams that are playing at that same level that they played this weekend. So if, if they continue that stretch into or that level of play into the NCAA tournament, they're going to be in a really good spot to, to make a Final Four. Yeah, so just to move on to the final, I think just the most impressive thing and something that we could really see the progress of this team so clearly with them playing Marquette in the final as compared to someone like Creighton is they played Marquette literally exactly a week ago on Monday from the championship game. And it was a 40 minute battle. UConn only beat them by 10 points. It wasn't like they necessarily dominated. I mean, UConn was in control for that entire game. So it's not like they were ever really threatened with an upset, but UConn was up by 19 at the end of the first half and the game was already over at that point or not the end of the first half, the end of the first quarter. Sorry. So it was just such a dramatic difference from literally a week ago to see UConn just absolutely taking Marquette to the woodshed. It was such an, 
incredible one week turnaround. And I think that's kind of the give and take with these young teams. As Gino's talked about how he wants to rip his hair out every other day with this team, but also their potential is so, so, so high because they are so young and because really the entire roster, except maybe Kristen Williams and Olivia Nelson, Adota and Avina Westbrook, probably none of them are anywhere near their potentials, their ceilings. So as long as they keep improving, there's no limit to how much better they can get. Whereas like last year's team, last year's team did have a limit to how good they could get. And that was a pretty high ceiling, but I still don't think it was necessarily a national championship ceiling unless they got some help from other teams and got some upsets and things really fell their way. So it's just the development that we've seen from this team since the Arkansas game specifically, but even just in recent weeks, it's just, it feels like it's getting exponential. Yeah, agreed. I feel like there's a kind of a point. I mean, the Arkansas game was not that long ago. Even the South Carolina game was like what a month ago. It's been pretty quick growth for them. I think they keep getting better almost every time we see them on the floor. So obviously that's a really positive sign. And now, I mean, they're coming out of this tournament where they've played their best basketball. I think by far of the season, I think these Villanova and Marquette games, especially just the way they came out in the first half and just really played buzzer to buzzer, looked like their best games of the season. They go into two more weeks of practice and then come out to the NCAA tournament. So I can only imagine they're probably going to look even better come then. So I think it's really exciting to think about how good this team is going to be heading into the tournament. Right. And I think that's just the big thing is that they're peaking at the right time. And yeah, Paige even said it explicitly that that Arkansas game was a wake up call for them and something that they needed. And I think that shouldn't be overlooked is that there's been so many undefeated UConn teams that it seems like it gets easy at some points, but honestly, a lot of times losses are going to help teams. And obviously at this point of the year, you don't want to lose games anymore, but if UConn does go on to win the, the national championship this year, I think the Arkansas game is a pretty direct reason of it. And that's why Gino Oriama schedules those tough games. I mean, that wasn't even on the schedule at the start of the season and UConn added it because they had lost the Baylor game. They had lost the Louisville, the Mississippi state game. So that could prove to be one of Gino Oriama's best decisions to just add that game at all. So they just keep getting better and better. And I think what we saw from the end of the regular season to the tournament is part of it is that they're, like improving as a team, but it also seems like they just went into these games with a different mindset. They talked about having a sense of urgency so much over these last three games and going into the tournament that it seems like it, they do understand that the postseason's different. And Gino talked about how a lot of times freshmen can go one of two ways when they get to the postseason. They can act like it's no big deal and it's just like any other game, or the weight of the games can make them panic. But I don't feel like UConn's freshmen did either of those things and really the team as a whole. I feel like they understood the gravity of these games and that made them better. It's not like they just acted like these were regular season games. They took the, the meaning of these games and used that to get better. If that makes sense. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think they really clearly stepped it up going into this postseason play. Yes, part of that's that they probably got a little bit better over the last week, but I think a bigger part of that is that they recognize that, you know, Hey, we're in the postseason now. If you don't win, you're done. And they recognize the significance of that and the fact that you need to be playing your best basketball of the season. So they're, they got a little bit better just from, I think, from understanding the circumstances. And like you said, they've talked about the sense of urgency quite a bit this weekend. And I think 
I mean, the way they played, like if you look at the the first half, especially of the Nova and the Marquette games, they just came out kind of firing on all cylinders after having slow starts basically all year. And I think that just speaks to clearly that sense of urgency has, has set in a bit. Yeah, I mean, they've just completely bowled these teams over from the opening jump. And like you said, that isn't something that we've seen this season and has been a theme all season long and something Gino's been trying to fix all season long. So maybe he just needed to start playing postseason games earlier. It, it seems like it was just something that simple that kind of flipped a switch for this team. And I think it is good that they have a pretty good self-awareness of who they are and what position they're in with these games, because I feel like you do need that in March where yeah, maybe with some teams, it is good to have that naivety and to be blissfully unaware, but these games are different. And even if the Big East tournament isn't really a great test of that, because none of these teams are really that good and UConn was supposed to win, it's still just a whole different vibe. And the three games and three games, three games and three days is different. And the fact that there's a trophy at the end, that's different. So yeah, it's just such a big, big improvement for this team and honestly for a lot of the year I thought that was going to be their Achilles heel was that they were going to come out and let's say the final four against Louisville and they weren't going to be able to put the ball in the basket for the first five minutes and Louisville was going to go up on some 15 to nothing run and UConn was going to outplay him the rest of the game but it wouldn't matter and I mean maybe that still does happen because so much can happen in the postseason but it's at least no longer a chronic problem. If it happens again, it'll be more of an isolated issue than just something that permeates this team every game. Exactly, right? It could still happen, you don't know, but I think seeing them at least come out and not have that slow start makes you think that maybe that problem's fixed or at least it's, it's not something that's going to be like their Achilles heel all the way through the tournament, which I think is important because like you said, as they start facing better teams, I think, you know, if you go, like we've seen them go into little holes against the own Villanova earlier in the season or whatever. And those are easy to climb back to because you just are such a better team and you have so much more talent. But when you start facing teams like Louisville or other teams that are, are really good teams, that hole is just might be too much to kind of overcome. So I think it's a positive sign to see them kind of at least seem to have resolved that issue before we get to the NCAA tournament. Right. Or even to just point to an example last season, the South Carolina game, it was what, two points in the first quarter. And then really the next two and a half quarters, two and three fourths quarters, those were honestly pretty even. I think I did the math. I don't remember what it is anymore, but the next, how long are quarters? I can't do math right now. I think it was like the next 27 minutes, South Carolina only led by two or three over that span. And then they ran away with the game at the end. But if, Let's just pretend that UConn played them again in a postseason that never happened. If they didn't have such a slow start, could UConn have maybe hung with South Carolina and then it comes down to a couple game or plays at the end? Obviously, we'll never know, but it's just kind of underlines the point. Like those slow starts weren't sustainable. And it's good to see that it's, again, it's not going to be a continuous issue as we go forward. And if anything, against Marquette, UConn started really fast and then kind of slowed down. And maybe it was intentional that UConn kind of slowed the pace down and weren't trying to run up the score to 200 points. But everything that I feel like we learned from the tournament, I feel like that one might get brushed under the rug a little more than the others just because of how prominent, you know, Kristen Williams' defense is or the team's defense, because it's so easy to measure in stats and see on a stat sheet. But the way they've gotten rid of these slow starts, I think, is just as important. 
Yeah, exactly. I think those are the, probably the two the two biggest takeaways from the tournament in general. Just that like they've eliminated that slow start, so then the defense is just on a, a whole other level than it has been, and I think that's going to be really key for them down the stretch. Also, Paige Becker is named the most outstanding player. Kind of weird. They said that during the award ceremony that the media voted on who won each award. The funniest thing is none of us that were at Mohegan voted on it. So I don't really know who voted on these awards. I know that if it was the writers and reporters that were at Mohegan Sun, it would have been Kristen Williams who won the award because no disrespect to the way Paige played or how her weekend went. Like, as we said, she had three very solid games, but Kristen Williams was UConn's best player wire to wire. And I don't even think it's really that close when you combine both how solid she was on offense with how dominant she was on defense that should have been her award, and I feel like she honestly got robbed a little bit. Yeah, can we give out like a chasing perfection most outstanding player and just give it to Kristen? Because I think her defense yes. alone, she should have won that award. And then you add how well she did on offense in all three games, and she absolutely should have won the most outstanding player. And that's not to discredit what Paige did. Paige did have a great tournament, but Kristen was just fantastic and absolutely should have taken home that award. Yeah, actually, I think the Chasing Perfection Big East Tournament Most Outstanding Player Award is more valuable or more prestigious than the Big East's actual award because this one was actually voted on by two media members. So (laughs) it it, it was a unanimous vote as well. There we go. (laughs) So congratulations to Kristen Williams, the winner of the Big East Tournament Most Outstanding Player Award as voted upon by Chasing Perfection. At least... Kristen and also Olivia Nelson Adota made the all tournament team, but really if Kristen and Paige were flipped, I don't think anyone would have batted an eye. And it's like, maybe it's just a little bit of recency bias that Paige had such a great game in the final, whereas Kristen's point total was lower. I don't know how it come, how they came to that because I think, like I said, if you asked anyone, I think they all would have picked Kristen. Yeah, exactly. I think anyone, if you watched all three of these games, it was it was pretty clear that Kristen was the best player on the floor. Maybe part of it is just if you, you know, you look at the box score, the, the defense that Kristen specifically played maybe doesn't necessarily come through. But I think when when you watch these games, it was just so clear how how instrumental she was to UConn's wins and in all three scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know how long Fox hung on the post game for like UConn celebration. But it was so, so entertaining watching this team celebrate. It kind of had vibes to last year where last year's Biggie's, not Biggie's, AAC Tournament Final Championship win kind of seemed to be a cathartic experience for that team who just, it seemed like everything last year just went wrong for that team. And they had such tough losses and they just kind of grinded through the entire season that it was such a great high note for them to ultimately go out on with the way they celebrated and It was different this year in the sense that they weren't having a cathartic celebration, but it was such a big, happy, joyous celebration for a UConn program that usually the winning the conference tournament has just become a formality. So there was obviously Paige getting attacked by the water after or during her post-game interview, but then also the team comes over and starts doing confetti angels. And then they start dumping confetti on, according to page, every single member of the program staff included Kathy or included. And then the freshman made a pyramid in the confetti live and the other juniors kept doing confetti angels. And then they finally all took one big photo. Gino from the six parts of six seasons that I've covered 
the women's basketball team. I don't know the last time, if ever, I've heard Gino that happy. He was just so, so, so proud of his team. And he just, I mean, he used the word life-changing to describe the way he watched his team celebrate for as much as he wants to complain about how this team drives him insane and how he has to change his coaching style for this team and how many extra gray hairs he has because of it. You could tell that he really loves coaching this team and it's very special for him. Even if it is partially insane inducing, is that even a word? It makes him a little crazy coaching this team, but he definitely loves doing it. Yeah, I mean, they showed a fair amount of the Pokemon Vox, and I think you could just kind of just tell even through the TV screen how happy this team was to win that championship. They were just clearly having so much fun and so much joy, and it, it was it was fun to watch, even from, you know, just on TV to see how happy they were. And then I think, like you said, Gino kind of post-game, it was, you know, extremely happy talking about kind of how, I forget what the exact quote was, but basically, like, what it's like to be young and how much fun this team seems to be, so... I think, I think it's clear that this team has a lot of fun and uh, I think that was very much on display in the, the celebration. And then also just, I think part of it probably has to do too with this, it's been such a weird season that they have so many rules and restrictions that they have to follow. So to be able to kind of culminate that with the, this big win and take home, what's hopefully just going to be the first trophy of the year is it had to be a lot of fun for them. Well, technically the second trophy of the year. I'm right, pretty sure right, you get a trophy <laughs> for the Big East regular season title. Where do you think they keep yeah, all the trophies? Aren't they all in that, the like worth center in that front room? I don't think they're all there though. Like think about how many trophies 52 conference True. championships <laughs> are. And then like, they also have like the various like random tournament things that they've won, like the preseason tournaments. Like it's not just all conference trophies in there. I know all the national championships are in Gino's office. And then like, they just have various other things like, around at least the areas that we've been able to walk around worth as media like they have like a naismith trophy kind of as you're walking out to the balcony i think like the big surfboard they got for going to maui or they got a big surfboard a couple of years ago for something i don't remember maybe it was the uh the tournament at the u.s virgin islands that's like standing right there but like 52 trophies well now 53 do, do you just split them up in the assistant coaches offices like does one player just get to take one home every year or something like <laughs> i i actually don't know the answer to this like their hat or do or does you just have a room full of conference championship trophies that every year they get back from mohegan and they just kind of throw it in and turn the lights off and lock <laughs> it until next year maybe because yeah that's true they have so many of them like what do you at some point you can't display that many of them they don't have that many offices or places to put them so yeah they're probably i don't know Maybe they, they keep the most recent ones out shining and then hide the other ones away somewhere. I don't, I don't really know, but it's kind of insane to think about how many conference championships they've won. And also the fact that they've now gone eight straight seasons without winning or without losing a single conference game. Eight. Eight. Eight years ago, I was 15 years old. Just put that out there. I was, what does that make me? A sophomore in high school, I think. Or was I a freshman? No, I think I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah, I was a sophomore in high school eight years ago. It's just insanity. Actual insanity. That is an extremely long time. Maybe when UConn football lost the conflict and UCF never took the trophy, maybe the football team just brought it over to Worth and said, here, wherever your trophy room is, like, just put this in here. Because, like, clearly it's in some, like, hidden basement of 
worth that nobody actually knows about. So maybe they just hid the conflict trophy in there so that <laughs> like there's already so many trophies that no one would notice just an extra one kind of in the corner tucked away under a blanket. <laughs> That's probably actually right. That's probably where the conflict trophy is. You solved the mystery. <laughs> I really want to know the answer to this. I don't even know how to visualize 52 trophies. That is so, so many. Like, at, do they just start, like, giving the Big Easts, like, their trophy last year and just say, like, here, just, like, pretend like this is this year's and we'll just keep the same one as we go through? Or is the regular season trophy just one that passes from team to team? I don't think it is, right? I don't think so. I can't remember, though. Because, yeah, then if you think about that, too, it's just insane. So many trophies. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Moving on to some of our major takeaways. I, we've already hit on a couple of these, so we won't repeat them, but Kristen Williams defense, obviously a huge development. UConn's team defense as a whole, it's just getting better and better. We touched on it a little bit, but the offense is just way more balanced. I mean, not just having Paige Becker score all the points, but the fact that I think Kristen Williams has just been a consistent score. And even Olivia Nelson Adota, she only had five points in the finale, but it didn't feel like the type of game where it's like, oh, Liv didn't really show up. Like she still had six assists, I think, and five rebounds, or maybe I'm flipping those numbers. Yeah, exactly. And I think we, I think we saw it this weekend. Like you said, Liv didn't have a ton of points against Marquette, but I think that was also part of they just didn't pound the ball inside as much in that game. Like they shot from Bridmore and they were hitting threes, so you know that doesn't happen often, but good to see it happen. But she was really consistent for them in both the Villanova and the St. John's game, had double figure points. And then in the Marquette game, I think Nika scored 11 points. Avina chipped in uh, in all the games as well. And then I think got contributions from Olia and Aubrey off the bench in every game. So everyone really pitching in on the scoring end, which I think is important. We go back to, you know, like the South Carolina game and other games where Paige had to score 30 points for them to win. And I, that doesn't seem like that's the case with this team. There's a lot of people that can step up on offense and pitch in and just kind of keep the balance or the scoring more balanced, which I think is also important in the tournament because when you have, you know, everyone on the floor is going to be a threat to score part points. Teams can't double page because you're going to have someone else that's going to be open to, you know, hit a shot instead. So I think that's going to be really crucial down the stretch. I pointed this out a couple of times on Twitter during the weekend, but Paige's off ball movement is so good and something that I don't think really gets talked about enough in her game because she, I mean, there were two specific plays that I saw on Twitter where she just totally shook her defender and ended up getting open and getting to the rim. But I think that's such a huge aspect is that she's so good at knowing when and how to make her cuts, how to get open and how to get to certain spots on the floor where she knows she's going to be successful if she shoots, because it's not just as if she's creating all these shots on her own. A lot of her shots end up assisted and she is very good at creating a shot on her own, but it's just such a different dynamic to this offense when they're moving the ball well and people are cutting. And especially when someone like Olivia Nelson, a Dota passes the ball so well, 
I mean, if you give it to Nelson Adota down in the post and Paige is able to do what she can do to get open on the perimeter, then you all of a sudden have this inside out game that is really, really hard to stop. So I just feel like that deserves more mention her off ball movement, because if you watch her specifically during a game, she is constantly in motion, constantly trying to get to the right spot, constantly trying to shake her defender. It's first of all, it's very tiring to watch, but it's also just really impressive to watch too. Yeah, exactly. I think the point you made that is really important is that she knows how to get to where like she can hit shots too, right? I think Chloe Pavlich on Instagram had a video a couple weeks back. I think it was after the South Carolina game. We're talking about kind of how like Kobe had his like kill spots on the floor and how Paige also has those shots. And that's kind of a big thing when the South Carolina game, when she hit that you know big shot at the end, it's one of her spots where she, she knows she's going to hit it. And that's kind of something that I think we see her get to those spots a lot, which is why she's so good offensively. Um, so yeah, I encourage people to go check out that video. I thought it was interesting, but the way she moves away from the ball and kind of gets to those spots on the floor that she needs to be to knock down big baskets, I think is really impressive, especially for a freshman. Right. I mean, just the one that sticks out in my mind is those elbows jumpers, the way that she beats the initial defender and pulls up right at the free throw line feels like 15 times a game. That's just, she lives in that spot. She seems to hit almost a hundred percent of those obviously not that high, but yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it. Kill shot or kill spots that those spots, definitely the top of the arc, but then also she's really good on the wings too, because even if she doesn't take the three there, she's really good at beating her player off the dribble and either getting to the basket for a bucket herself or then dishing it back out to the perimeter for someone else. So yeah, it's just that something that she's had from day one. And I think, again, is something that didn't really get talked about enough in her game is from that first moment, she was able to make all the shots, but she was also just so good at having a sense of the defense and where the soft spots in the defense were and how to get there. Like that's how she scores so many of her points. It's not just that she's crossing defenders up or doing things of that nature. Like she just has such good feels of a defense that even when you do have someone that's stapled to her, she's really good at shaking them off or figuring out how to shake them off or even just knowing where to move on the court to get someone else open. And that's just really something that I don't think you can really teach, or at least it's not something that you can teach quickly. That's something that you have to learn over a long period of time. So the fact that she already has it, that's probably what makes her the most dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And I think you especially saw that Last night when she has Selena a lot, you know, co-defensive player of the year guarding her, she's still able to find her shots, be efficient, and that's that's a big piece of it is her understanding how to navigate the defense and where she needs to be on the court to hit those shots. Speaking of the Big East Awards, let's move on to those. Selena Locke, co-defensive player of the year with Olivia Nelson Adota. Paige Beckers, as expected, wins Big East player of the year and freshman of the year. Second player in Big East history to do so. It's pretty easy to guess who the first one is. It's Maya Moore. Not really a huge surprise. Aliyah Edwards wins sixth player of the year, which I feel like I was a little surprised about, but at the same time, not super shocked. And as for the teams, Paige and Kristen were unanimous. First team selections, Olivia Nelson Adota made the second team. Paige and Aliyah both made the all freshman team. I think the biggest gripes that there are with those is I don't understand how Olivia Nelson to Dota can be a first team or can be a second team selection, despite being a co-defensive player of the year, especially like, I know that you can't put all UConn players on the first team and that's not the way you should do it, 
but there's 10 players on the first team. You're telling, you're saying that Olivia Nelson Adota isn't one of the 10 best players in the conference, considering there's not a single person in the conference who's capable of stopping her. And she was a defensive player of the year. That made no sense to me. And I also thought uh, Avina Westbrook should have made at worst honorable mention, if not the second team, she deserved to be on there somewhere, but yeah, those were the two biggest things that stood out to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the biggest thing that stood out of Olivia not making first team was that, okay, you don't want to put all UConn players on it, but I'm pretty sure there was three Seton Hall players on first team. So you're telling me that Seton Hall has three of the best players in the conference, but UConn doesn't when UConn steamrolled through basically every opponent in every single game other than that one 10-point win over Marquette? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, Liv definitely should have been first team. <laughs> Right. And yeah, Seton Hall is good players. I mean, Andrea Espinosa Hunter had a good year. Desiree Elmore and Lauren Park Lane were both really good players. But again, yeah, you can't have three Seton Hall players on the first team if you're not going to have three UConn players. Also, just why is the first team 10 players? That makes no oh, sense. Yeah. It's like, is there an explanation for that? Or is that just something the Big East does? I feel like I've seen multiple conferences do this. I've seen some that are 10, 11. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, it's if you want to have three teams, have three teams, but make it five on the first team, five on the second team, five on the third team. What, like, why is there 10 players on the first team? It makes literally no sense. At that point, just remove the first team or second team and just have all conference selections. Like, add in the honorable <laughs> mentions and just have, like, 17 people on the all-conference team. Like, that seems like a better solution than – a first team that has 10 players. And if the first team has 10 players, why doesn't the second team have 10 players? It doesn't make any sense. Like, is it just a voting thing where like, if players reach a certain number of votes, they get there. I don't, I saw that. And it just made like, uh, initially I saw that like, okay, like these UConn players made the list, but then I just went back later to see who else made it and saw that there were 10 on that first team. I don't understand. Like, that's not how basketball works. There are five players on the court. So wouldn't you want a team to consist of five players? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So UConn officially punched its ticket to the NCAA tournament. Shockingly, I know we were all really on the edge of our seats with that one. Looking at every single bracket projection to see if they would make the field. They're in, officially. They're definitely going to be a number one seed. There is going to be a bit of a storyline, I guess, on whether or not they will be the number one overall seed. So ESPN's bracketologist Charlie Cream moved Stanford up to the number one overall seed with their Pac-12 championship win. Our resident bracketologist, Megan here, took Joe Lenardi's bracket class, so I don't know if Charlie Cream's done that. Let's go through your top 16 team. So let's do it like a good old-fashioned bracket reveal. So yeah, number 16, I have Missouri State, 15th Kentucky, 14th West Virginia, and 13th. Tennessee. Um, I think a mid-major, mid-major in there too. Yeah, I think, I mean, Missouri State has just two losses on the season. I think when we get to that, that four seed range, there's a lot of teams kind of right in that same area. It's a bit of splitting hairs between all of them. I mean, you've got teams in in the power conferences that have five, six, seven losses that are, you're talking about are contentious for those spots. I feel like a team that plays in the MVC, which is a solid mid-major league with just two losses deserves a spot there we'll see if the committee does that I mean I think there tends to be a favoritism towards the power five conferences especially with SEC being so strong but I think with the amount of losses we've seen 
uh, even in the last week with the conference tournaments that they'll probably Missouri State will probably sneak into that top 16. So then who do you have on the three line? The three line, we've got Indiana at 12, Arizona at 11, UCLA at 10, and Georgia at 9. It seems like the threes are all pretty locked in, right? Yeah, I would say that's pretty locked in. I think Indiana probably has some roof to either move out of that or move up in it, depending how they do in the Big Ten tournament. The Big Ten tournament starts Wednesday, I believe. Um, but I think Arizona, UCLA, and Georgia are all done like UConn until Selection Monday. So expect them to kind of stay in that same spot. Moving on, the twos. Twos at eight, I have Louisville, seven, Baylor, six, Maryland, and five, Texas A&M. It kind of feels like a loaded group there. Like, it seems like the top eight teams yeah. are all kind of a class above everyone else, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you've got a pretty solid top eight. I think kind of regardless of what Maryland and Baylor do in their conference tournaments this week, as long as they don't lose in, like, the first round, they're probably staying on that two line. So, it seems like the group at the top. And I think if you're thinking about teams that have a chance to win this this NCAA tournament, I think this kind of is that group of eight. And then drum roll for the final four seeds. Yeah, so um, NC State up to four. They were on two line in the selection committee's last reveal, but um, they, they did win the ACC tournament and had a big win over Louisville this weekend. So and then Texas A&M lost in their first game of the NCAA tournament. So, or not the NCAA, of the SEC tournament. So kind of switching places there. South Carolina back up on the three line or three spot after winning the SEC tournament this weekend. That's I think a big deal there. The SEC, like you've said, how many SEC team names at this point? So a lot of depth in that league. So big win for them to win that tournament. I still have Stanford on the two line after winning the back 12 tournament and then UConn on the one line. I think this is the kind of one that people are debating the most is, is Stanford that number one overall or it's UConn. To me, when the selection committee was, it, it was the 28th, they put out the latest bracket. They had UConn as the number one overall and Stanford as the number two. When you kind of look at what UConn and what Stanford have played over the last week and a half or so since then, Really, the big difference is if you think that Stanford's win over UCLA pushes them over or not. I think the rest of their strength and schedule, UConn probably has a little bit of an edge with playing Marquette twice versus Stanford played, I think, USC and Oregon State. So I think, um, you know, I think UConn stays there. I don't know that the committee is going to move them down just for one win over UCLA. I could be wrong there, but I, th- I think UConn probably stays in that top spot. So then you did the regions. We don't need to go through every single one, but you basically did it on an S-curve, right? Yeah, basically on an S-curve and then some small adjustments because you can't put... um, So the first four teams from each conference have to go into different regions, and then you don't want teams from the same conference meeting until the regional finals. So a couple small adjustments for that, but mostly on the S-curve because you don't have any geography playing into it this year with everything being in Texas. So you have UConn's region as being UConn, Louisville, the two, Georgia, the three, Missouri State, the four. The only thing I would say there is I maybe I'm thinking, looking into it a little too much. There, there we go. But I kind of feel like if Tennessee is in that range, I think you they might end up in UConn's region just to set up the potential matchup, which would be big, big TV ratings. Whereas if they're in a different region, they would either have to get to the final four national championship to meet. So I think, I feel like the NCAA might try and set that one up. 
Yeah, I can see them doing it. I think it's going to depend kind of where the rest of the SEC teams fall because I don't think they're going to break one of their rules to do that. And with the SEC having so many teams in the top 16, and I mean, I think that those, like I said, those last final four, the four seeds, there's a lot of teams that are kind of splitting hairs over there. So you could even have an Arkansas maybe slip in there as well. So I think things could get a little bit complicated. Um, but I think if it's doable, then they could start to set up that matchup coming in the in the regionals right so that's going to be next monday it feels like for some reason it feels like the start of the ncaa tournament after the conference tournament is so far off yet it's really only a week until we at least have a concrete bracket to talk about next week we get to make our picks for the ncaa tournament i have a very hot take that i really would love to just drop right now but i'm going to hold it off until next week for our ncaa tournament preview we're going to have a look at what UConn's path to banner number 12 is what some of the most exciting matchups could be and some predictions as always keep an eye out for that next week other than that that's going to do it for this episode of chasing perfection you can follow Megan on twitter at Megan Gower you can follow me on twitter at Daniel V Connolly be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify iTunes wherever you listen to your podcasts tell a friend Subscribe to the UConn Women's Basketball Weekly as well. Read Store Central and the UConn blog. Megan, roll us out here. Only 12 more days till the start of the NCAA tournament, so we're almost there. That'll do it. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm just glad she's coming to save our program because we're in dire straits. You know, from I read some of the articles written about her. Uh, you know, there's this uh, perception out there that... Uh, you know, once AZ FUD gets to Connecticut, you know, the whole world will stop and everybody will not want to play basketball anymore because, you know, we'll have AZ and Paige on the same team. They wanted us to limit Anna to 10 minutes today, so she tried to help the cause by, I thought she was going to foul out in 10 minutes, but she managed to not. Of all the players that I've coached at UConn over the years, I would say the top three all-time freshmen of guys who bitch about playing time. That no matter how many minutes she plays, she's not happy. And when I take her out, she has something to say all the time and complains every single time she comes out. And she does it in a way that I, I, I really, I want to put her back in, but it just drives me crazy. So uh, I would say looking back, she's definitely in the top three of all time pain in the asses when it comes to playing time and she's averaged 35 minutes a game this year so um you know she's got that record too and she was bitching about playing time again today just so i'm going the record of saying that two days in a row one of our players at the free throw line she yelled miss because she knew she was coming out i love her and everything but there's something not quite right about her then she came off and checked the stat sheet and she goes, uh, this is yesterday. You owe me two extra minutes tomorrow because I didn't get to play my average. So you owe me three minutes tomorrow. I was going to not start her. Get back to Paige. You know what she told me yesterday or this morning? She goes, I'm the best defensive player in the country. I, I, my players don't talk to me like that. So they make shake my head. Nika looks at me sometimes and, and, and I almost feel like, what are you looking at? And, and like, I have to, I start worrying about me. Like, is there something wrong with me?